0: CHAPTER Six: THE TRINITY AND POLITICS Know then, my friend, that the Trinity was born more than 300 years after the ancient gospel was declared. It was conceived in ignorance, brought forth, and maintained by cruelty. That's a quotation from William Penn. A historian has correctly stated, Christianity by identifying truth with faith, must teach, and properly understood does teach, that any interference with truth is immoral. A Christian with faith has nothing to fear from the facts. A Christian historian who draws the line limiting the field of inquiry at any point whatsoever is admitting the limits of his faith. That's a quotation from Paul Johnson in his book A History of Christianity, written in 1976. The fearful believer obstructs the whole point of the Christian venture, which is to seek progressive understanding of truth. History, unfortunately, is often seen through the eye of the beholder, particularly if a historical matter is viewed from a narrow secular or religious perspective. Examine the lives of the founders of any religious group. Read the account in books, magazines, and newspapers written by secular writers. Then study the same life from an autobiography or the works of faithful devotees. There is little agreement beyond a few matters of fact and minor unerasable statistical data. Given time and distance, a huge gap develops between historical reality and a canonized version of the facts. It has taken skill to hide the dark side of the lives of the founding fathers of religious groups, such as, for example, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Joseph Smith, and Presbyterians. Whose founder was John Calvin. By contrast, frank disclosures about the lives of Bible heroes appear in the Sacred Record, right down to the details of drunkenness and loose sexuality. Yet we seem to find it necessary to sanitize the lives of later religious leaders. Unpalatable and harsh, as it may seem to some, We could speculate that this tendency relates to the biblical statement made by Jesus. I quote, A corrupt tree cannot produce good fruit. Matthew 7 verse 18 Could it be that candid disclosure might reveal the upsetting seed of corruption? Stupendous efforts are made to present the lives of famous religious leaders in as saintly a mode as possible. It is hoped that this lends credence to their doctrines and the belief systems they passed on to posterity. Similarly, when we read the various accounts of the origin of the Trinity, we are astonished at the way different sources color the same subject. Some Christian writers hold that the Trinity was already completely at home in Christian circles by the time The New Testament was composed. New Testament authors therefore saw no need to make other than indirect reference to the Trinity. It was supposedly so much an accepted part of church tradition that they scarcely bothered to record what would have been the most dramatic change ever to have invaded the religious community of the first century. Other writers recording the same theological event are in complete disagreement. They point to a bloody centuries-long battle among Christians, in which thousands paid with their lives before the Trinity was finally canonized as Christian dogma. More than three centuries after the death of Christianity's founder, the Church has been ready to support great political leaders when they further the Christian cause and back its ecclesiastical control. At the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, the Emperor Constantine secured age-lasting honour from the Christian Church by granting complete toleration to all Christians and other cults. A few years later, he charted the rough course, which led to the settlement of disputes over doctrine between rival factions. The result was the first major step toward the formal incorporation of Trinitarian belief into Christianity. Most Christians would be surprised at the implications of the observation of the Roman Catholic scholar W. E. Addis, commenting on the religious turmoil caused by the attempt to introduce the idea that God was more than one person, he said, I quote, "...the bulk of Christians, had they been let alone, would have been satisfied with the old belief in one God, the Father, and would have distrusted the so-called dispensation as it has been called, by which the sole deity of the Father expanded into the deity of the Father and the Son. All simple people, Tertullian wrote, not to call them ignorant and uneducated, take fright at the so-called dispensation and they will have it that we are proclaiming to Or three gods. That's from a book, Christianity and the Roman Empire, by W. E. Addis, written in 1967. Those Trinitarians who believe that the concept of a triune God was such an established fact that it was not considered important enough to mention by the time the New Testament was written, should be challenged by the remarks of another writer, Harold Brown. I quote, It's a simple fact and an undeniable historical fact that several major doctrines that now seem central to the Christian faith, such as the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the nature of Christ, these were not present in a full and self-defined generally accepted form until the fourth and fifth centuries. If they are essential today, as all of the Orthodox creeds and confessions assert, it must be because they are true. If they are true, then they must always have been true. They cannot have become true in the fourth and fifth century. But if they are both true and essential, how can it be that the early church took centuries to formulate them? As from Harold Brown's book, entitled Heresies, written in 1984. Elsewhere, the same Harold Brown says, Heresy appears in the historical record earlier and is better documented than what the Church came to call Orthodoxy. This startling admission that the religious world replaced original teaching with a new and different Orthodoxy has not gone unnoticed by other observers of the Christian scene. The Jewish writer Pinchas Lapid, in his dialogue with the Protestant scholar Jürgen Moltmann on the Trinitarian doctrine, observes that whoever knows the development of the history of dogma knows that the image of God in the primitive church was unitary. And only in the second century did it gradually, against the doctrine of subordinationism, become binary? For the church fathers, such as Justin, Martyr, Irenaeus, and Tertullian, Jesus is subordinate to the Father in everything. And Origen hesitated to direct his prayer to Christ, for, as he wrote, that should properly be to the Father alone. That's a quotation from Jewish monotheism and Christian Trinitarian Doctrine by Pinchas Lapid. The total picture which arises from history is almost like an arithmetic progression. In the first century, God is still monotheistic in good Jewish fashion. In the second century, God becomes two in one. From the 3rd century, the One God gradually becomes threefold. Pinyasa speaks of the, quote, bloody intra-Christian religious wars of the 4th and 5th centuries, when thousands upon thousands of Christians slaughtered other Christians for the sake of the Trinity. How was this tragic dispute resolved? One man, the Emperor Constantine, changed the course of Christian history. He was the first to bring about a merging of Christianity, Paganism, and the State under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. As Johnson points out, Constantine no doubt shared the prevailing view that all religious cults should be respected, In appeasement of their various national deities. He also notes that Constantine, and I quote, appears to have been a sun worshipper, one of a number of late pagan cults which had observances in common with Christians. Worship of such gods was not a novel idea. Every Greek or Roman expected that political success followed from religious piety. Christianity was the religion of Constantine's father. Although Constantine claimed that he was the 13th apostle, his was no sudden Damascus conversion. Indeed, it is highly doubtful that he ever truly abandoned sun worship. After his professed acceptance of Christianity, he built a triumphal arch to the sun god, and in Constantinople set up a statue of the same sun god bearing his own features. He was finally deified after his death by official edict in the empire, as were many Roman rulers. That's from the book A History of Christianity. In Constantine the professional soldier, Christianity has embraced an unusual champion. He was the most powerful secular ruler of any age ever to be counted among the Church's heroes. It might be well to ask how closely his life paralleled that of Christianity's founder, who bears the title Prince of Peace. It was Constantine who, by official edict, brought Christianity to belief in the formal division of the Godhead into two, God the Father, and God the Son. It remained the task of a later generation to bring Christianity to belief in the triune God. It was this same Constantine who, with the head of his decapitated rival, his own brother-in-law, dripping blood from his lance, marched in triumph into Rome. He gave credit for his victory, to a supposed vision in which he saw the Greek letters Chi-Rô, the first two letters of the name Christ. The story varies with the teller, but before this historic slaughter, he ordered that these same letters be painted on his soldiers' shields. Only six years before his triumphant march into Rome, he ordered that hundreds of Frankish rebel prisoners be torn to pieces in an arena. He also stood by while the anti-Christian policies of Diocletian brought about the burning of sacred Christian texts, followed by the mutilation of believers who refused to worship pagan gods. Eleven years after winning this heaven-inspired triumph, history divulges that the alleged follower of Jesus murdered an already vanquished rival, killed his wife by having her boiled alive in her own bath, and murdered an innocent son. His private life became monstrous as he aged. He grew fat and was known as the bull-neck. His abilities had always lain in management. He was a master of the smoothly worded compromise. Yet he was overbearing, egotistical, self-righteous, and ruthless. In later years, he showed an increasing regard for flattery, fancy uniforms, personal display, and elaborate titles. His nephew Julian said he made himself ridiculous by his appearance, wearing weird stiff eastern garments, jewels on his arms, a tiara on his head, perched crazily. On top of a tinted wig. His chief apologist, Eusebius of Caesarea, said that this Christian emperor dressed solely to impress the masses. Privately, he laughed at himself. But this also contradicts much other evidence, including Eusebius' own. Vain and superstitious, he may have embraced Christianity because it suited his personal interests. And his growing megalomania. The cynic might ask how well Constantine's life reflected the humble carpenter of Nazareth. Despite his baptism, just before his death, it has been speculated that Constantine's deeper interest, apart from the normal superstitions of the warriors of that age, may have been largely political. His desire to bring harmony to a divided empire required political astuteness. Constantine's skill would be the envy of latter-day politicians who must curry favor with large blocks of politically active competing religious groups. In some cases, this has entailed claiming a, quote, born-again experience at the height Of campaigning activities. Christological controversy. In the Roman Empire, a deep theological difference arose between the Christians in Alexandria and those in Antioch. These opposing groups constituted a threat to the unity of the Empire. Because of the political potential of the rival factions, these differences had to be resolved. Christians in Alexandria believed that Jesus had pre-existed eternally as a divine being and that he had become human by appearing as a man. The Jesus of this theology ran the risk of only seeming to be a real human being. In the technical language of Christology, the Jesus of the Alexandrian Christians was docetic, from a Greek word meaning to seem. The point was that his deity so dominated his humanity that the latter was only a pretense. The Savior himself was truly God dwelling in a human body and possessing, so the jargon ran in its developed form following the later Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. His human nature was impersonal human nature. Jesus himself, it was held by the Orthodox, was man but not a man. For those who had grown up around Antioch, the region which included the area of the homeland of Jesus, a different view of Christ prevailed. Here the original monotheism of the Jews stressing the oneness of God resulted in a belief in a created Son. The distinctive tenet of this so-called Arian Christology was that Jesus, as Son of God, must have had a beginning and, though pre-existent, could not have been co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. At the center of the controversy, which developed between the two parties, was a priest named Arius who attracted a sizable following in the Alexandrian bishop Alexander's domain. Arius' efforts to promote his Christology in Egypt promptly brought about his excommunication. The marked ideological differences between Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch were matters of concern to the Roman emperor. The power of religion played so great a role in the stability of the 4th century Roman Empire that a religious turmoil had to be brought under control by the state, lest it disrupt political unity. Constantine determined to resolve the dispute by means of the following identical conciliatory letters sent to each faction. Urging reconciliation of differences. Constantine, the victor, Supreme Augustus, to Alexander and Arius. How deep a wound has not only my ears, but my heart received from the report that divisions exist among yourselves. Having inquired carefully into the origin and foundation of these differences, I find their cause to be of a truly insignificant nature, quite unworthy of such bitter contention. That's a quotation from Ian Wilson's Jesus the Evidence, written in 1984. Constantine was evidently oblivious to the profound theological issues involved in the controversy. When his initial effort failed to resolve the dispute, he called what may have been the single most influential ecumenical council ever convened in the history of the Christian Church. A fateful and far-reaching decision was made on this divisive issue of the nature of Christ and of the Godhead. The appointed date was early summer, 325 A.D., the venue was the pleasant lakeside town of Nicaea in northwest Turkey, where Constantine had a suitable, commodious palace. With Christianity having spread as far as Britain in the west and India in the east, for some of the delegates the journey took several weeks, if not months. The hermit Jacob of Nisibis arrived in goatskins, accompanied by a persistent horde of gnats. Another delegate was the saintly Nicholas, who was the prototype of the Christmas Santa Claus. Before this bizarre and unprecedented assembly, Constantine, dazzlingly robed and dripping with golden jewels of a decadence earlier emperors would have abhorred, took his place on a low, wrought-gold chair. The church historian Schaff, quoting Eusebius of Caesarea, further describes the scene. I quote, The moment the approach of the emperor was announced by a given signal, they all rose from their seats, and the emperor appeared like a heavenly messenger of God, covered with gold and gems, a glorious presence, very tall and slender, full of beauty, strength, and majesty. That was a quotation from church historians Schaff, the history of the Christian church. It was at this point in history and before this assembly that a decision was to be made that would have the most profound consequences for believers in Christ to this very day." So said Ian Wilson in his book Jesus the Evidence. For reasons best known to himself, this largely biblically illiterate emperor, who did not fully understand the theological issues at hand, presided over one of the most significant debates ever to be conducted by the Church. The resolution adopted by the Council was to have dramatically important long-term effects on the entire body of believers. Constantine's judgment favored the minority opinion at the Council. The decision taken is accepted by the vast majority of Christians to this day, that Jesus was co-equal and co-eternal with God, very God. Of very God. Thus the second leg of the triangle of the Trinity became dogma. It was to be completed in the next century by the declaration that the Holy Spirit was the third person of the Godhead. The Greek philosophically minded Alexandrian theologians led by Athanasius won the day. Those more under the earlier influence of Jewish monotheism were defeated. Dissenters who refused to sign the agreement were immediately banished. The church was now taken over and dictated to by theologians strongly influenced by the Greek mind. Thus the course of its doctrines was set for the next 17 centuries. H. L. Gouge's observation is appropriate. I quote, When the Greek mind and the Roman mind, instead of the Hebrew mind, came to dominate the Church, there occurred a disaster from which the Church has never recovered, either in doctrine or practice. That's a statement of Canon Gouge in an essay entitled The Calling of the Jews from a book, on Judaism and Christianity. This control has continued unabated since the fourth century. The political cohesion Constantine sought to bring to the Empire he certainly achieved. These are the facts of history, but at what cost to the cause of truth? The Christian Church to this day unwittingly prostrates itself before the low wrought gold throne of Constantine. Too late, some of the Antiochian signatories to the parchment protested in writing to Constantine that they had quote, committed an impious act. O Prince, they said, by subscribing to a blasphemy from fear of you. That's a quotation from Ian Wilson's book, Jesus, the Evidence. So wrote Eusebius of Nicomedia. Nevertheless, the deed was done. A whole new theology was formally canonized into the church. Since that time, numberless diverted Christians who have disagreed with the emperor's enforced edict have faced torture and death at the hands of the state and often at the hands of other Christians. One should not express surprise at the acceptance by Constantine and the Greek theologians of a deity consisting of two persons. It was in character with a widespread acceptance of multiple deities. The Roman and Greek world was saturated with many gods. The idea of a god becoming man was hardly an innovation. Compare it with that, Acts 14, verse 11. Nor was the notion of a man being declared God. Constantine had ordered the deification of his father and would be granted the same honor upon his own demise. At his burial, he was recognized as the 13th apostle. Today, Constantine's monumental decision casts its imposing shadow over the fragmented body of 20th-century Christianity without serious opposition. Constantine's influence seems to continue unchallenged, as is the case with Napoleon, who became the bloody butcher of European manhood, Luther, Calvin, or a modern religious leader such as Joseph Smith, faithful followers do not permit their leaders' halos to tarnish, but they continue to burnish their reputations to a bright glow. The truth of history may judge them more harshly, but their spiritual descendants seldom tolerate any who would dare to find fault. For two centuries after Constantine, slaughter followed slaughter as professing Christian vied with Christian in a bloody struggle in defense of what became a hardened religious orthodoxy. It was required that one accept belief in the Godhead of two persons, later expanded to a deity of three persons, or face banishment, exile, torture, and death, largely in the interests of political expediency and the preservation of what was dogmatically declared to be unquestionable truth. I note that a well-researched account of the strong political influence in the formation of Christian dogma is provided by Ari e. Rubenstein's When Jesus Became God, The Struggle to Define Christianity During the Last Days of Rome, written in 1999. Following Constantine, violence became an accepted Christian method, of solving disputes. In the early part of the 11th century AD, Christian Crusaders warmed to the prospect of liberating the Holy Land by force of arms. After slaughtering European Jews, they proceeded to wreak havoc on the monotheistic so-called infidel Muslim who controlled the holy city of Jerusalem. This carnage was instigated under the bloody banner of a triune God. Some have suggested that Islam might never have found a place in the world if the single-person deity of the Jew had remained the Christian God. In all these developments, it's hard to find anything remotely harmonious with the life of of the founder of Christianity, who said, quote, Do not resist evil. Turn the other cheek. Matthew 5, verse 39. Blessed are the peacemakers. Matthew 5, verse 9. And who promised that the meek would inherit the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5. The same Messiah had protested, quote, My kingdom is not of this world that is does not derive its origin from present evil world systems though it will be on the earth in the age to come if that kingdom were of this system jesus said then my servants would fight john 18 verse 36 i note that many biblical passages tell us that the kingdom of god will be established On the earth. Matthew 5 verse 5, Matthew 19 verse 28, Matthew 25 verse 31, Revelation 5 verse 10, Isaiah 2 verses 1 to 4, and so on. This will happen when Jesus returns. Once Christianity had committed itself to the theological verdict of the secular conquering arm of the state, acceptance of violence in the church became established. The church had made a fatal compromise with the world, a decision which leaves it floundering in uncertainty and doctrinal confusion, prepared also in time of war to kill both its enemies and to kill its own members in enemy lands. The Catholic Church, when threatened by false doctrine, later considered it the God-given responsibility of the faithful to destroy all opposition through the Inquisition. She saw her protesting children in the Protestant world employ similar means. Dissidents to the Protestant Reformation received equally harsh treatment from powerful Protestant leaders. In league with secular government. A remarkable example of how Christian leadership sometimes responds when its age-old doctrine of the Trinity is threatened by the idea that God is a single person is shown by the reaction of one highly regarded leader of the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin. The unfortunate victim of Calvin's cruelty was the anti-Trinitarian Michael Servetus. Servetus, educated in the Catholic religion, trained in civil law, and subsequently in medicine, was appalled at the pomp and adoration given to the Pontiff in Rome. After coming under the influence of the early Reformation, Servetus continued his energetic study of the Bible and became the first protestant to attack the doctrine of the trinity his writings leave little doubt that he was exceptionally well educated schooled in both hebrew and greek he declared in a somewhat emotive even abrasive manner that the catholic dogma of the three divine persons in the godhead was a construct of the imagination a monster compounded of incongruous parts, metaphysical gods, and philosophical abstracts. The accusation attracted the notion of Calvin, who responded that Servetus, quote, deserved to have his bowels ripped out and to be torn to pieces. Those quotations will be found in the General Repository and Review, edited by Andrews Norton and written in 1813. Ironically, although Servetus was largely sympathetic to the Protestant cause, he soon found Protestant Germany and Switzerland off limits for him. He was, however, able to find a home in the palace of a Roman Catholic archbishop in France, who was an admirer of learned men. By then, Servetus had become a skilled physician and the first one to publish an account of the passage of the blood from the right ventricle to the left oracle of the heart. The diversity of his accomplishments showed him to be intellectually the equal of other reformers. His continued correspondence with Calvin on the Trinitarian issue did not, however, ingratiate him with the constituted authority of Geneva, where Calvin had become virtually to control a powerful theocratic system. Servetus told Calvin, your gospel is without the one God, without true faith, without good works. Instead of the one God, you have a three-headed Cerberus. That's the mythological Greek three-headed dog who guarded the gates to hell. He further stated to Calvin, quote, Instead of true faith, you have a fatal delusion. These words would certainly not qualify Servetus for the diplomatic corps, but we should not doubt his integrity or the courage of his convictions. Calvin, true to the spirit of Constantine, vowed to kill him when it was in his power to do so. Servetus determined, however, to publish one more work, designed to restore Christianity to its original purity and to free it from the errors which had polluted the faith. Calvin obtained a copy of Servetus' finished work attacking the Trinitarian doctrine. He then proceeded through an intermediary, to have the Catholic Church arrest Servetus. During his incarceration, he was treated with respect, and after three days was given a key by the jailer for a walk in the gardens. He escaped and walked to freedom, but it turned out to be a death walk. His freedom was short-lived. Determined to go to Naples in Italy to continue his practice as a physician, he made the unfortunate decision to travel via Geneva. This was Calvin's territory. Ruling with almost absolute power, he had established an ecclesiastical theocracy. Servetus could no doubt reason that if caught, his treatment from fellow Protestants might be more merciful than if he fell into the hands of the Catholic authorities. After his escape, the Catholic Church had tried him in absentia and sentenced him, quote, to be drawn in a dung cart to the place of punishment and there to be burned alive, in French, tout vif, by a slow fire with his books. Tragically, Servetus did not reckon with the character of his Protestant enemy who had said, quote, if he comes and if any regard be had to my authority, I shall not suffer him to escape with life. Calvin later admitted, quote, I do not conceal that through my exertions And by my counsel, he was thrown into prison. Calvin would have better served his modern apologists had he not written an account of his dealings with Servetus. But it is not uncommon for followers of any leader to turn a blind eye and remove from public view the most objectionable aspects of their hero's conduct without strict regard for the facts. Servetus experienced the full force of the ruthless Calvin. After suffering cruel privation and humiliation, he was bound to the stake with an iron chain. His last book fastened to his thigh after he had begged his executioner not to torment long the fire was applied to a scanty pile of green oak branches. He lingered a long time in torment, crying out with a piercing voice, Jesus, Son of the Eternal God, have mercy upon me. At last some of the spectators, out of compassion, threw faggots, that's to say burning sticks, upon him to put an end To his misery. Thus ended the life of a brilliant man whose studies of the Bible put him in opposition to a powerful 16th century Protestant reformer. Despite any historical disagreement over the strengths and weaknesses of the two antagonists in this tragic drama, the plain fact remains that Servetus was burned at the stake for his opposition to a religious doctrine the Trinity. He suffered a cruel death for daring to publish his honest, well-studied disagreement with hallowed tradition, whose supporter felt threatened. Time has not succeeded in erasing this fearful blot from established Christianity's record. It would be wrong to believe that religious or secular opposition to belief in a single person deity is confined to an ancient past through one means or another covert or overt the biblical concept of a deity of one person the one god the father of paul's creed 1 corinthians 8 verse 6 has been hidden under a blanket of contradictory words phrases and suppressed discussion. The violence with which the doctrine of the Trinity has been defended casts a pall of suspicion over it. Something seems desperately wrong with a teaching that has precipitated such tragic and bloody episodes in church history. The dogma which even its proponents say cannot be explained and one which makes little sense to the rational mind, was the product of Greek thinking. It was at odds with the Hebraic theology in which Jesus and the apostles were nurtured. The God of Moses, Isaiah, Jesus and the apostles was one person, the Father. One cannot be made equal to two or three. All that can be done with one is to fractionalize it, divide it into smaller segments, and it is no longer one. Expand it, and in spite of prodigious mental gymnastics on the part of Trinitarians, it cannot be made into two or three and still remain one. This is not to say, of course, that God may not appoint agents to extend his influence and exercise his authority, but this is not an ontological but a fiduciary relationship. God will not submit to fractionalization or division. When Christianity took its formal initial step, forcing a division of God into two, Father and Son, It fragmented itself, not God. So the Christian world remains to this day not unified, as Christ prayed, but segmented into conflicting denominations. This fact should cause us to ponder the question, if Christ prayed that his church would be one, was that prayer not answered? Is it possible that today's divided and confused religious community is in fact Christian in name only? Could its primary creed be a deviation from the Bible it loudly claims as its standard? If we lay aside the imaginative speculations of Greek philosophers and theologians, if we omit argument from inference in our search for the true God and the real Jesus, and rely entirely on Scripture's plain creedal declarations. The Bible reveals that Jesus was the Messiah, Son of God. This is the New Testament's central dogma. This is the creed of the earliest Christians, and there's no need to alter their perceptions of the Savior by presenting him, as a pre-existent super-angel, or as the eternal God the Son, who became man. It is reasonable to account for the shift in thinking, which now makes it hard for Bible readers to distinguish the legacy of tradition from the original teaching of Jesus and the apostles. A Christian in search of truth, however, will have nothing to fear from the facts.